It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who prefer a little bit of discomfort from a vaccine over a terrible bout with cancer. Indeed. Yes, it is. Which should be everybody. So again, the podcast for everybody. It should be for everyone. But we're going to talk about what factors into people somehow preferring chancing cancer. Yep. My name is Karen Ernst. I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician here at Blank Jones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And as I just hinted at, we are going to be talking about HPV vaccine decisions, how people make those decisions, why some people are hesitant about the HPV vaccine, what we can do to improve HPV vaccine rates so that we are preventing six forms of cancer. Mm-hmm. And we're really talking about how people make decisions today, though. We've had two previous HPV Vax Talk podcasts. Mm-hmm. Very first podcast was with the director, the filmmaker from Someone You Love and one of the people in that film. Christine Bays. Christine Bays. We've also talked to Tamika Felder about her bout with cervical cancer and her organization Survivor. And so if you want to know more about cervical cancer and HPV disease and a little bit about how the vaccine works, please go back and find those episodes. But today we're really just talking about how HPV vaccine decisions are made. Yeah, these are always, um, we've been doing these in January each year, and they're they're some of my favorite podcasts to do just because the topic is so important. When we look Mm -hmm. at all the vaccines that we talk about, they're all important, but HPV, as you and I have said many times, not only is the body count of HPV-associated disease as high or higher than many of the other vaccine-preventable diseases that we talk about, We also have this deficit in terms of vaccine coverage. We also have so much more work to do in terms of getting uh, the population immunized against HPV and saving those lives. Go ahead and listen to those old ones, but we're going to keep doing these because every year because it's so important. It is. And and I think you and I both have a special passion around HPV vaccines. Part of mine, too, is that the science behind the HPV vaccine itself is sort of incredible. It's it's a really cool vaccine, just science wise, Mm -hmm. as far as how advanced it is in how it was made and the research behind it. Someday we'll do a, a podcast on that, too. That will be really cool. But it's a cool vaccine. It's an important vaccine. Yeah, that would be a cool podcast. Okay. And I should have mentioned at the top of all of this that we're going to be talking to Dr. Dr. Noel Brewer from the University of North Carolina Health Behavior Department, and he's got some great, interesting things to say, so that will be wonderful. Yeah, he is a a good speaker. I I got the pleasure of being able to listen to him last year here in Des Moines. He spoke at the Des Moines University Medical School here, Mm. and uh, yeah, it'd be a really good interview. He's a very personable guy. So I'm excited to bring him to all of you. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and hit our Around the Web. Mm-hmm. You want to go first? Yeah, sure. I, You know, there are so many things that have been happening, and I wasn't sure what to pick. And I know some things we might be visiting in future episodes. So I'm, I went with uh, maybe a little bit more of a nuts and bolts 
thing, which is the announcement that the FDA has now approved a hexavalent vaccine uh, for use in the United States. Da, 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 da. Yeah. So this is, it's kind of exciting for me. I know this sounds like an, maybe an odd thing to get excited about, but if you really think about vaccines over the course of the last decade or more, even though kind of anti-vaccine websites will talk about our exploding vaccine schedule, blah, blah, blah. The, the, the reality is we haven't had that much change in the vaccine schedule since right around 2005, 2006, when like the latest rotavirus vaccine was out. There has been some changes to like now we've got hpv that covers nine types of hpv you know and we've got a better pneumococcal vaccine but most of the vaccines that we have the recommendations have been similar we've kind of expanded a little bit on the on the influenza recommendations and whatnot but this is kind of exciting because this could actually reduce the amount of needles that a kid gets because the way that shots are now most visits, and there's some variability in clinics, but most visits at your two-month, your four-month, and your six-month visit, your child is probably going to get a pentavalent vaccine, which is a vaccine that contains uh, immunizations against five different diseases in it. And then they're also going to get uh, two individual vaccines and then the oral uh, rotavirus vaccine. So that's three shots that your child has to get at two, four, and six months. Now, there's a, some variation there. Uh, because there's two brands and those two brands contain different they contain different uh, disease uh, different vaccines in them so the if it's pentacel that penicillin contains the DTaP, the diphtheria tetanus pertussis, and then Hib and then polio. But if it's Pediorix, you got the diphtheria tetanus pertussis and the hepatitis B in polio. And so if you got the the Pediorix where the hepatitis B is separate, and your child got hepatitis B uh, at birth, you get to skip a hepatitis B there at four months. But all of that to say that now there may be in the near future, and I believe it was announced that it might be in production by 2020. Um, a, a hexavalent vaccine, which would contain those together. So it would be DTaP, Hib, Hepatitis B, and polio all in one vaccine, meaning that a child would only need to get two shots, that and the pneumococcus at two, four, and six months. So anything that reduces the amount of pain that a child gets, anything that makes it easier for parents to get all their vaccines, uh, I think is a good thing. And so I'm really excited to see this roll out and and the other thing to mention with this is this isn't exactly new in the sense that um, hexavalent vaccines have been around in other countries and approved in other countries for a number of years. I want to say uh, off the top of my head, I want to say a decade or more, but I could be wrong on that. It's, but it's not it's not all that new. It's just recently approved uh, for the United States. So we can all look forward to that in the years to come. And it seems that um, the research from the other countries, the studies show that it's a very safe vaccine, too, mm -hmm. correct? It it does. And there's already kind of preemptive, I think, kind of hits out on the anti-vaccine websites trying to make it seem more dangerous than it is using mm -hmm. the same usual kind of um, weak information, using um, reporting systems that aren't intended to you know, determine causation and whatnot. But no, the data behind it is strong. It, it appears mm -hmm. to be a very safe vaccine. Um, the brand name I believe it's going to be going under is Vaxellus. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. So look for that. Do you know when you combine uh, vaccines like that into one shot, mm -hmm. does that mean you have less of 
those certain ingredients that right. makes vaccine hesitant parents sometimes uneasy. Like, for example, you know, aluminum adjuvants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So usually it's interesting because you do see these families that are nervous about ingredients and vaccines. And these ingredients are in such small trace amounts. They are not mm-hmm. a danger to anybody. But parents are nervous about it, but they're also nervous about too many too soon. But they're, if you do the math in some of these vaccines, when you don't combine them, you basically in some cases have to have as much or nearly as much of certain ingredients in each vaccine. And so over the entire course, if you're breaking them up and giving them separately, you may actually be giving your child more of an ingredient that you're unnecessarily worrying about in the first place. I don't know the data, the numbers on aluminum in Vaxellus. I can't tell you how that compares to uh, them separate, but that's entirely possible. Yeah, it's super interesting and super exciting. And I hope clinics carry it. I know when I was getting my youngest, his second MMR and his second varicella vaccine, I asked the doctor, you know, can we get this in one shot? Can we get the MMRV? And he was like, oh, we don't carry it. And so I I gave him a stern, disappointed look because I'm (laughs) I'm pretty sure I know why they don't carry it because they probably ask for a lot of parents ask for those vaccines not to be given together. So I just kind of looked stern and disappointed at the same time. It's a hard look to pull off, but I can do it. Yeah, I I don't doubt it. So what do you got today? Well, I'm being a little meta. Okay, here we go. I'm reading an article from The Guardian, which is a UK newspaper, really good Mm -hmm. newspaper in the UK. And they, they talk about how the Royal Society for Public Health published a report that showed that 40% of parents um, see vaccine misinformation, so incorrect things about vaccines, online. Another group in the UK, the Advertising Standards Authority, brought a complaint to Facebook about a US-based group, um, a Facebook group called Stop Mandatory Vaccination. Mm -hmm. Um, who had paid for an ad uh, that incorrectly attributed a child's SIDS death to vaccines, Mm -hmm. which we know is happening a lot lately. Um, It's a little, you know, ghoulish, honestly, how anti-vaxxers will sort of look for parents whose babies have died and then work to convince them that it's been vaccines. Yeah, if if you're following things on Facebook, you can almost see it happen in real time sometimes when family loses somebody and then gets beset upon on on facebook Uh, it's the worst and sids is a really you know not a very satisfying cause of death Mm -hmm. sure it's hard to say i don't know why your baby died it seems wrong that a child should die yeah it's understandable that people would look for a reason and you know when we give vaccines at two four and six months there's a chance that there will be a temporal association this is sort of a two-parter the the royal society for public health found that two in five parents of children under 18 um said they were exposed to negative vaccine messages on social media or on online forums either often or sometimes um and the number of parents whose children were under five was 47 percent. so that's about half of parents said that they're seeing this information on misinformation online um and, you know, as a result of that, the, the advertising standards is trying to get Facebook to tamp down on uh, 
ads like the one from Stop Mandatory Vaccination and Facebook is, you know, kind of saying, what, what, what can we do? Uh, the usual Facebook response, yeah. yeah. We're, we're just a private corporation. <laughs> How could we possibly ever, you know, moderate our privately run organization that is not public at all? Um, so, <laughs> yeah, um, it's frustrating. It's actually really angers me that this sort of stuff is allowed to run rampant online. And... You know, usually we do a call to action at the end, but I really want to bring a call to action now. And that's that, you know, you don't have to spend hours and hours online debunking everything and getting lost down a rabbit hole. But it, it's enough to just, you know, stand up for the truth when you can to the amount that you can, whether that's encouraging people through your own social media channels, I vaccinate my child, vaccines are safe or effective, or I'm a pediatrician, I have never seen a severe reaction to a vaccine, I believe in them and I want to vaccinate your children because I, I love children. Or if it's, you know, if you see someone post something online that's incorrect to say, you know, this is incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> if you have the time, explain why it's incorrect. If not, just be like, this is not right. You shouldn't be posting this. This is a danger to public health. And, uh, you know, a lot of people do that. But I think it, it a lot of people also scroll on past because they don't want to become embroiled. And I think yeah. there's something halfway in be between becoming embroiled and scrolling past. And that's, you know, just just standing, just saying your thing. You can unfollow the post then if you want to. Um, but really, you know, being vocal so that the 95% of us who do vaccinate are giving some space for people who don't want to be swept away by misinformation. You know, this makes me think of something that we also, that we didn't talk about as are around the web, but is kind of a big deal. And that's the World Health Organization um, mm. acknowledging that, you know, they put out, I think they do this every year, but they put out their top 10 list of uh, world health threats. And one of the top 10, in no particular order, as far as I can tell, one of them is vaccine hesitancy, straight up. So it, it kind of touches on all the, you know, there are a lot of reasons for vaccine hesitancy. It's not just um, necessarily the work of anti-vaccine groups, but pretty much is looking at, you know, pointing at, hey, anti-vax groups out there, you guys are a major threat to, uh, to world health. Uh, and this is part of what you're talking about is, is part of that. I mean, the mm -hmm. active uh, promulgation of misinformation about vaccines and the use of the leveraging of social media. And the, the second thing that this makes me think of is just how much even as important as it is for us to stand up and, and talk about the truth about vaccines, be honest about um, how important they are. Uh, there is going to have to be some serious uh, like evaluation of how social media companies mm -hmm. do their advertising, how they do their algorithms and whatnot that is done in such a way that is not uh, basically a public health threat. And I have, we have friends fortunately who are actually study that. So I, mm -hmm. I like seeing their work. Um, but uh, that's something going forward that we all have to keep an eye on and be cognizant of. Yes, absolutely. So that is a great place to, for us to sort of stop for now. And then on the other side of the break, we can talk to Noel Brewer. How does that sound? Sounds good. Let's take a break. All right. See you on the other side, folks. Oh. 
Roll oh, that beautiful vaccine footage. <laughs> We're now joined by Dr. Noel Brewer, who is a professor of health behavior at the University of North Carolina, and he's also the chair of the National HPV Vaccination Roundtable. So welcome, Noel. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me on. Most people have never heard of the HPV Roundtable, and I'd like them to know more because there's really a, a wealth of fantastic resources there. Could you tell us a little bit what the HPV Roundtable is about? The National HPV Vaccination Roundtable is a coalition of over 70 national change-making organizations that are working in the intersection of immunization and cancer prevention. We all work together to raise HPV vaccination rates and to prevent HPV cancers. There are three main things that the Roundtable does. We convene national organizations, experts, and key stakeholders to think, uh, to strategize, and to solve problems. We also communicate. Uh, we are uh, focused on HPV vaccination as cancer prevention, and we specifically act to communicate and inform providers, systems, coalitions, parents, and generally the larger public. And then finally, finally, we catalyze our members to take action to close the adolescent vaccination gap, that gap between other adolescent vaccine coverage and HPV vaccination coverage. So that sounds exciting, but I, you know, one thing that I've heard about groups that get together and talk about vaccines is that they're masterminding some sort of big plan to visit harm upon our young girls, especially with HPV. And so is that not a part of what the HPV Roundtable does? We have clear national guidelines that say that adolescents ages 11 and 12 should routinely receive HPV vaccine. This is not a questionable practice. It's very well established in uh, basic research on the efficacy of the vaccine as well as ongoing post-licensure monitoring of the vaccine. So the CDC has established that we should provide HPV vaccine to adolescents, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Family Physicians, the National Cancer Institute, and so on, all agree that this is a vaccine that should be routinely provided. It's also provided in all the, not in all other countries in the world, but in all other countries that have, that have funding for it, HPV vaccine is definitely available and routinely provided. So what, uh, in your research and in your experience, what do you think is the, if we had to boil down to the biggest barrier in terms of getting those HPV immunization rates high enough, what would that barrier be? Providers are the main challenge right now in getting HPV vaccination rates up higher than they are currently. Providers face a lot of challenges. They're busy. They've got a lot else going on. They don't have a lot of time, and they have the impression that talking about HPV vaccine will take too much time. And it's true that HPV vaccine takes more to talk about than takes more time to talk about than the other vaccines. However, the amount of time that it takes is really a couple of minutes at most. It's not five or ten minutes. It is true that some conversations will be quite long. They could even be 10 or 15 minutes long, but on average, it's not that long. It's a few minutes long and maybe even less than that. Uh, we know this based on recordings of actual conversations. So that's one issue with time. The second issue is that providers think parents don't want it, but research suggests that parents really do want HPV vaccine and other adolescent vaccines. This is something that they say very clearly across many studies. The challenge, however, is that parents have questions. There's been a lot of media coverage and just drama around HPV vaccination. So people don't know what exactly their question is. They just feel uncomfortable, at least many parents do. So physicians are going to get more questions about HPV vaccine than any other vaccine. At the same time, parents do want the vaccine. 
Another thing that's misunderstood commonly is that parents who say no aren't saying no forever. They may not even be saying no for the rest of the year. About half of parents who say no to HP vaccine will go on to get it in the next year, and then a quarter will still plan to get it at some later point. So even among those who say no, they're still up for HPV vaccination. The third and final reason for low uh, coverage, that is for providers not uh, recommending the vaccine more forcefully, is that everyone's just a little bit uncomfortable about talking about sex. So about a third of vaccine providers expect that talking about HPV vaccine will lead to a conversation about sex. And that could be a little uncomfortable, having an 11-year-old in the room, having the parent in the room, and then there's the provider, and maybe they've not gotten to that point yet. What we try to explain is that HPV vaccine is cancer prevention. It prevents six cancers. That's what we should be talking about. If there's a time for anticipatory guidance about sexual behavior, providers can certainly have that conversation at the time that's appropriate, with or without the parent in the room, based on what their, what their standard clinical practice is. HPV vaccination does not have to be part of that conversation. So let's back up a little bit. We've talked about HPV vaccine and HPV-related cancers a number of times on this program, but can you tell just for the listeners who may have just be tuning in, you know, since last year, talk a little bit about HPV, talk about the burden of the disease and why this vaccine is so important? HPV infections, persistent HPV infections cause 30 to 40,000 cancers in the U.S. every year, depending on which estimates you look at. That's a lot. That's 5% of our cancers overall. These cancers can be prevented by a vaccine, and that's really exciting. We now have a vaccine in the United States uh, that's called Gardasil 9. It's HPV 9. So it prevents nine different kinds of HPV infections, uh, and it's incredibly effective. It's also been studied extensively. The safety profile is outstanding. There's really nothing else that we have medically that's been studied as intensively, uh, it is quite safe. Thinking of a re- I'm thinking of a recent review paper by Phillips that identified, uh, I think, 109 studies in six different countries with 2.5 million people, and it, the vaccine came out with an excellent safety profile among all those many studies. For me, when I look at those statistics, as a parent, that's kind of a slam dunk. I have three boys. One of them will be old enough in a year or two to get his HPV vaccine. The other two have already had it. But a lot of parents feel that the vaccine is somehow not worth getting or is maybe dangerous in some way. And I know I'm, I I know one of your main focuses of academia and scholarship is looking at pe- how people assess risk. So how is it that so many parents look at the facts about HPV vaccines and decide it's too risky to get and they'd rather take their chances with the virus? I think parents are making a lot of difficult decisions without a lot of information. I'm also a parent and just had a, a son about a year ago. And one of the things I'm really struck by is how much information there is to make sense of on just the routine things like which bib should I get and which bottle nipple, and then it all changes and I'm on to the next, the next round of whatever the product or thing is that I have to deal with. Uh, when it comes to medical care, I feel pretty good because I can go to my pediatrician and say, what is your expert advice? This is someone who has a degree in this and who uh, has treated thousands of other children. So we've been very comfortable in, um, in following our, our pediatrician's advice. Uh, an interesting story is when our son was born, we were having to make a decision uh, at the time of birth about one of the vaccines that he would get. And so we saw our pediatrician beforehand. But even before we got to the pediatrician's office, 
We'd already talked to three healthcare professionals who had nothing to do with our sons, our 2B sons' uh, medical care. One person was, um, uh, was someone we were interviewing to help with overnight care for a couple of days. Another person was someone who ran a daycare, and I forget. I think the third person was just a friend of the family. Each of them had told us there were, there were, that vaccines should be delivered on an alternative schedule and really communicated there was some kind of a problem with vaccines. And I think that sort of problem is out there. That sort of uh, noisy communication is out there. So before I even got to my pediatrician for the first time to talk about vaccines, we'd already heard some kind of thing might be at issue. So my husband and I went a couple months before our son was born and asked for uh, advice on what we should do about the vaccines. We got our advice. We listened to it. We were good. Baby's born. Ten minutes later, 20 minutes later, a nurse comes over and says, what would you like to do about the hepatitis B vaccine? And almost simultaneously, I said no. I said yes, as my husband was saying no. We had heard completely different things from our pediatrician. Uh, we completely misunderstood what he had said. So I think this is um, a, a real issue that not only is there noisy information that gets into our heads before we even get to talk to experts who are trained and who know what's going on, we also then have a hard time taking in some of the complex or nuanced information that the professionals might share. So having clear, simple guidance, and uh, that guidance first from professionals, I think, is ideal. All that said, as I was saying earlier, parents have a lot on their minds. They have a lot to deal with, and they're going to be asking advice from parents. When I'm trying to figure out what the next book is, I naturally, you know, I ran to a colleague on the hall and said, down, you know, walking down the hallway in my building, and I said, oh, by the way, what are you, what are you reading to your kid when, when he was about a year old? What, was, what were you reading? And I said, oh, well, that's a great book. Okay, I'm going to get that. So I went, went and bought that book. We take advice from our peers all the time. And on vaccines, that advice can be complicated because none of us who as parents, in our roles as parents, really have a good grasp on the detailed information that an expert would. However, that's what their job is. That's what medical professionals do, and we should look to them for advice and follow that advice. So you had mentioned that the number one barrier here is really providers being willing to give the strong recommendation, answer questions, follow through, and whatnot. But there is, of course, as you're kind of describing here, there is, there is natural vaccine hesitancy out there particularly with the HPV vaccine, when it comes to parents who are trying to parse through all of this information and trying to make these decisions, what have you found are the major barriers uh, for them? What are the major maybe myths that they believe or what are the major reasons that they give for not choosing to get their adolescent immunized when the doctor actually recommends it? Parents have not expressed a single most common reason for not vaccinating their children. The reasons range from, I don't have enough information. I'm concerned about safety. My, my kid's not the right age. I don't know if it's right for boys. But none of these different excuses or reasons or rationales account for more than 20% of the general population of parents. So it's a little bit of everything. Oh, I guess I should add the, another one that's important is my provider hasn't yet recommended it. So as far as I can tell, all the reasons that are the most common ones in the top five or six are amenable to a conversation with a provider, that a healthcare provider who knows their stuff can address these questions and concerns. One of the things I think is important is when providers hear a question or a concern from a parent, it's often quite sincere and often asked in the spirit of saying, I just don't know and I need your help. Providers don't often hear that kind of questioning of their authority or of their advice, and some can, I think, get defensive or just be startled by it. 
I think it's really important for providers when they hear a question or concern to slow things down, clarify with the parent. This is a technique we, uh, we, we teach, and we also have a paper in pediatrics that's coming out this week. Uh, we teach uh, providers to uh, connect with the parent to clarify and then to counsel. So the connecting piece, we recommend that the provider ask, what's your biggest concern? Often parents will throw out something that's on the top of their mind, but it could be a cover for what's really, really getting at them. And they're maybe even a little embarrassed, embarrassed to say it because it's so silly to them, or they know that it's probably not right, but it's still just, it worries them a lot. So get the main concern on the table and then show them that you heard it by saying it back to them or acknowledging it in some way. That acknowledgement or restatement of the concern or showing that you listened in some form is incredibly important. So that will allow you to connect with the parent. So you slow down and connect with the parent. You can then uh, clarify what the science says. It doesn't have to be long. It can be fairly short. You should avoid things like talking about your own personal experience or what you, what you think other parents do. Talk about what the evidence shows and what you know as a clinician. That's what parents want to hear. Then after that, you should close uh, with saying that the child really is due and you'd like the parent to get that, the HP vaccine for the child that day. And you can do it in a, a nice way. It doesn't have to be a difficult conversation. Yeah, that that sounds like a really good plan. Some of parents, um, when when asked what their main concern is, they're going to refer to something that they've read online. And in fact, we know that there are websites set up that try to present HPV as excessively dangerous, and in fact, try to uh, take all these correlations and try to make it seem like certain medical conditions are caused by the vaccine. When you and I know from the research that they clearly aren't, but this creates anxiety and fear in a parent that is hard to discuss in scientific terms. How Do you have any kind of uh, idea of how to address parent concerns that are based on basically um, frightening anecdotes on the internet uh, and how to allay those concerns? I think there are a few things going on. One is that the conversation with parents is going to be in the context of ongoing care for the child. So hopefully by the time these issues come up, there is a meaningfully deep and personal relationship between the provider and the parent, and also that the trust has been built over time. So in that context, I think it is possible to get out what the real issue is, and it may be affected in nature or emotional or something feeling-based where you just get spooked, the parent just gets spooked, and can't, um, can't quite get over it. Uh, I also think that's a fair reaction. When I read these stories about children who people believe have been affected or harmed by vaccines, it's unsettling. It's worrisome. Some of these stories go all the way back to the 1800s. The anti-vaccine literature back then used a similar narrative approach. And it's very hard to fight these narrative approaches with just facts. Uh, in terms of our promotional work or our, uh, our public-facing work, we always try to make sure that we include providers in the conversation, uh, uh, survivors. We always try to make sure that we include survivors in the conversation. So people who have survived uh, cervical cancer or, or oral pharyngeal cancer or one of the other HPV cancers, or alternatively, people who have know someone who's died from these cancers. I think speaking from that perspective is important to give a reality to the diseases that HPV can cause. The shorthand version of this for me is something along these lines, that there are speculations about harms that HPV vaccine causes, but none of them have been supported in over in the over 100 studies that have been done internationally. So we have no clear evidence of the harms of the vaccine. What we do know is that HPV infections are a killer, and they claim 
thousands of lives every year. Tens of thousands of people die every year because of HPV infections. Protecting children from HPV cancers is urgent and it's important. I would take the certainty of protecting my child from HPV cancers over the possibility maybe that there is this unsubstantiated rumor that possibly the vaccine could maybe cause some problem, but no one really quite knows what. All sorts of vaccines, there's hesitancy you know, about all kinds of vaccines for all sorts of reasons. But for some reason, the HPV vaccine has sort of a special place among parents falling into the trap of being made afraid by anecdotes. And parents who would get every single other vaccine will say, you know, I'm not sure about that one. That one seems dangerous or I've heard bad things about it. What is it about the HPV vaccine that causes fear in parents who readily got their children, you know, MMR vaccines and flu vaccines every year and, you know, hepatitis B vaccines? Why, why is the HPV vaccine in this special place? It's a really good question. Other vaccines introduced about the same time for preventing meningitis and uh, tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis have already reached our national goals of being over 80% of eligible kids getting the vaccine. HPV vaccine is nowhere near that in terms of coverage. The reasons for that are somewhat complex, have a little to do with the history of how the vaccine was introduced and then the context of the patient population. Historically, what happened is that HPV vaccine was introduced just for girls and not also for boys because the trials were uh, more possible to conduct. They were looking for cervical cancer precursor lesions. And of course, you can't find that in boys because boys don't have services. Um, So that was one of the issues is that this vaccine introduced for adolescent girls And then the idea that HPV as an infectious agent is sexually transmitted. So you have sex, you have adolescent girls, and of course, this being America, everyone just got nutty about that. On top of that, the promotion of the vaccine in America was done by, largely by industry. Uh, Public health and agencies have done a little bit of work, but really very little of the heavy lifting. Some research that we did identified that some 80% of parents had heard about HPV vaccine through an industry ad, and only 10 or 20 or 30%, really more like 20% of most, had heard from any other source. So that's really problematic. Uh, In places like the UK, HPV vaccine ads were not allowed uh, by industry. Instead, uh, the Central Health Service did all of the promotion of it. So I think this is something that public health should take some responsibility for. The final and I think really explosive piece was that there was some legislation that was introduced to require HPV vaccination for school entry. And there are lots of different opinions about whether or not this would be a good idea or a bad idea. Uh, I have, I, I can see merits to the various sides of it and all the different concerns. I think there is some merit to requiring it. But what happened is that the, the legislation was introduced in all 50 states through organization called Women in Government, and it was based on grants that came from one of the companies manufacturing the vaccine. And once this became publicly known, this became just a a huge firestorm. And that ended both the push for school entry requirements in most places, uh, and then it also um, added this complicated feeling around the vaccine that somehow was being promoted in order to um, uh, further the interests of, of a company when in reality, it's 
to further public health. It's to save lives. HPV vaccination is cancer prevention and prevents six cancers. That's the main thing I think we should we should walk away knowing. That was a lot of information that I did not know. That is absolutely fascinating. And it kind of leads me to my next question that I didn't know I was going to ask. And that's that, what can we learn in the future as far as introducing vaccines? Say we get a vaccine that we can give that, you know, prevents another form of cancer or, you know, prevents other forms of diseases that are transmitted sexually. What would be a better way to introduce those vaccines to the public to have the public feel comfortable with them? We know a few things about what works and doesn't work for vaccine introduction. One of them is to have age-based guidelines. With hepatitis B vaccination, initially it was recommended for men who have sex with men and injection drug users. That approach failed completely uh, in the U.S., and so we then switched to universal recommendation at a certain age, and that was effective. For HPV vaccination, when we uh, introduced it, it was age-based recommendations, but people kept trying to bring this, this issue of risk in, that we should really be giving it to folks who are uh, being based on sexual activity or based on HPV infection and so on. And that's really a, a terrible way to do it because it's hard to judge those things with any accuracy. Uh, also, some folks wanted to vote. Uh, in some other countries, um, they introduce HPV vaccination only for females and not for males, uh, or they introduced it for females. And then they also included MSM, who have a particularly high rate of certain HPV cancers. That's also really just a complete failure because providers don't hear about who's MSM until fully two, three, four years after uh, the, the guys become sexually active. So, and then, of course, become have high risk for infection. So age-based guidelines are a really important way to do this. Uh, and then another important thing is to embed the vaccine into whatever the current system is. The idea for adolescence vaccines was to build an adolescent platform that didn't exist before. So that idea uh, came about, I think, in the early 90s, maybe in the late 90s. And, the, uh, uh, and that's how we ended up with meningitis, Tdap, and HPV vaccine all happening at the same time. We have a new platform happening at the, uh, starting at, the age six, at age 16, and that's for the meningitis booster. I think one of the things we know is that pediatricians are really good at giving HPV vaccine, but also all other uh, childhood vaccines. So if you can give a vaccine younger, it's going to work a lot better. Something happens right around adolescence where uh, kids are coming in a little less often, parents are a little less concerned, they're a little less engaged, and it's just hard to get people to get vaccines. And once you move on to giving vaccines to adults, then really all bets are off. Uh, a really spectacular example of a failure of a vaccine was the shingles vaccine. The first one that was introduced wasn't all that great, but on top of that, they made it available only through pharmacies. So you had to go to your physician or your healthcare provider and get a, uh, a, um, uh, get a prescription for the vaccine. And then you'd have to go down to your pharmacy and either get the vaccine and bring it back to the uh, provider, or you could have the pharmacy delivered if they have that capacity. So those multiple steps just made it really very, very difficult. Of course, insurance coverage is a large part of this. So having insurance coverage from the get-go, giving it a younger age if that's appropriate, and then making sure that you have clear guidelines that are not based on a risk assessment, but are based on some objective metric like age. Those are some of the things that we can do to increase uptake early on and quickly for any new vaccines. We developed a training for providers 
called the Announcement Approach, and we provide the materials for the training on hpviq.org. It's meant to be an in-person training, but at least the script and the slides and so on are available on the website, hpviq.org. So organizations looking to do quality improvement work, that could be a system, healthcare system, or it could be a single clinic, uh, can... Um, can work to try to have one of these trainings. Uh, it is an effective way to recommend the vaccine. It's based on evidence that was published in pediatrics a couple of years ago. It is now recommended by the National Cancer Institute as an evidence-based practice. And the general approach of using presumptive announcements for vaccination is recommended by the CDC and also by the American Academy of Pediatrics. I'm not a provider, but sometimes I go into those programs and I take those little trainings just so that I can have some um, sympathy when I am talking to providers about how much they have to know and put in their brains when they're faced with a patient who's got questions about vaccines. I bet Nathan didn't know that about me. No, but that doesn't surprise me even one little bit. <laughs> Thank you so much, Noel, for joining us. And uh, I just want to ask you, is there any place that people can find your information or, inf or information about the HPV uh, vaccine or the HPV roundtable if they are interested in looking up more? People who want more information about HPV vaccine can certainly go to the CDC's website. Uh, there's a website for parents that has outstanding and very up-to-date information, as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, they have a, a great website. The National HPV Vaccination Roundtable also provides uh, materials for typically more for providers and systems to use, but parents may find them to be of use as well. We have a clearinghouse at the roundtable for educational materials for parents and professional groups as well, uh, professionals uh, as well, healthcare professionals. That might be of use to some folks. And what's that website? The website for the National HPD Vaccination Roundtable is found at hpvroundtable.org. Thanks for having me. Good luck with the piece, and um, I love that you do this. Thanks so much. Bye. And thank you, all of you, for joining us, too. Uh, my name is Karen Ernst, and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find Voices for Vaccines at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines. You can find me in various places on Facebook, on Twitter at PedsGeekMD, and on my blog, PedsGeekMD.com. Stay alive, everyone. We'll find you. <laughs> Stay alive. <laughs>